morning. Welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. My name is John Dunning. It's good to be with you this morning. I work on the campus of Kansas State University with an organization called RUF, which stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It's the campus ministry of our denomination. It's my privilege to serve there. I appreciate all your prayers and support of the work that we do. It's my privilege this morning to open God's word with you. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me in it to Colossians chapter 1. It's, going to, it's a smaller book near the end of the New Testament, near the end of your Bibles. Full disclosure, I am wearing pants this morning. If you've been with us, you may find this amusing, but I'm wearing pants that are of the shortened variety for comfort and as a nod to the beginning of May. Um, but hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction for you this morning. As we begin to look together at Colossians 1, I want you to think about where did you think you'd be this first Sunday of May in 2020? Present circumstances aside, I wonder where you find yourself this morning and where you expected to be even from a few years ago. Certainly a few months ago, I didn't expect to be doing this on a Saturday and, and watching it with you on a, on a Sunday morning from my own living room. But the reality of our lives are that we, got, we, we often plan very, can, are able to plan very little, aren't we? We're, able, we're not able to see far into the future, far greater than these immediate circumstances would you have planned to be in Manhattan, Kansas, or wherever you find yourself this morning as you were watching this together, as we watch this together? Would you have planned this? Could you have planned it? I suspect for many of us, even from a few years ago, we would have said, there's no way we could have planned to be where we are today. These are the questions I want us to consider as we look to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a letter written by a man named Paul in the first century AD, so roughly probably 40 to 50 years after the birth of Christ. It was written to a city of Colossae, which about a century before these words were written was a significant influential city. By this time, because of change in trade routes, it had lost some of its luster, but it was still a bustling city with a variety of people there demographically, somewhat of a diverse population, including Greeks, Jews, other Gentiles, and even Christians, as we see this morning. Paul's writing this letter to the gathering of Christians in Colossae, people who heard the gospel of Jesus that was brought to them by a man named Epaphras. And he's writing to encourage them to stay the course and to continue on in the lives that the gospel has had already begun changing in them. I want to read to us this morning, beginning in Colossians chapter 1, verses, verse 13. We're picking up, as it's, it, we're in the middle of a thought of Paul. He's, he's writing, how, writing specifically describing how he's praying for these people. And so we're going to pick it up as he thanks God for his, the work that, that he has been doing in their lives. Hear now from, God, from God's word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. The, the pro pronoun we begin with, he, is speaking to God the Father specifically. Paul writes these words beginning in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in this eternal moment as very finite human beings, as very finite creatures bound by space and time, we ask that by your spirit you would send out your light and your truth, that they would guide us, that they would lead us, that they would take us to the place where you are, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we might be changed by your word. Would you apply it deeply to our hearts and to our lives and to our minds? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. A good friend of mine who also finds himself along with me approaching what we call midlife um, pointed out uh, a thought from a book that he's read that I have not read yet um, that that came across this idea that conveys this idea of what it it feels like to be in middle age. It's a novel about a middle-aged English professor and the author describes this man in this way at one point. He says he was 42 years old and he could see nothing before him that he wished to enjoy and little behind him that he cared to remember. Admittedly a sad thought for this morning, to live your life with little that you want to remember and little looking forward to that you want, that you're looking forward to enjoying. But I wonder if some of us can relate to this. I wonder if you can relate to the thought that says, wow, I woke up this morning and I'm an adult. I have bills to pay. I have a job to go to. I have a family to take care of. I have a house or an apartment. I have responsibility. We see more clearly what we won't become for many of us when we hit this point in life. The dreams of being a professional athlete or being a movie star or being otherwise famous or interesting in, in one of those regards generally won't come true. It's daunting for us. It's daunting for us to look at our lives and ask ourselves, what am I looking forward to beyond what's the, what's the next thing I need to do before, what's the next thing I need to do? In fact, in my early years of ministry, getting to know parents of the students that I was ministering to, I would hear regularly from, from these adults who were 10 to 15 years ahead of my wife and I in life, this phrase, it was, an, it was a refrain, refrain that was echoed again and again and again. The phrase was, life just didn't turn out the way we expected. Does it ever turn out the way we expected? Now, I agree strongly with the notion that for most of us, we will live quiet, very ordinary lives. And I have nothing wrong with that. I don't think that's selling out. I think that's the nature of what it is to live as human beings in this day and age. But I want to be quick to acknowledge, even in the midst of dealing with our ordinariness, that there's a fine line and a wide chasm between contentment and resignation, between honesty and, between honesty and cynicism, between submitting to the reality before us and simply just giving up. If we want more out of this life, What does it look like to pursue it? Maybe we need to begin by asking, do we want more than our present circumstances convey? And I'm not talking about fame and fortune. I'm talking about an inner sense of wanting more, of getting more from life and enjoying more of what is before us. These are the questions, interestingly, I think the Apostle Paul anticipates. As he writes this letter, he's writing to people who are doing well. They've started their, their journey of faith with Jesus strongly. Word of their accomplishments, word of their good deeds have made it out beyond their city, which is a good thing. And he, yet he encourages them over and over again to pursue something more, to, to live differently, to be more. And I want to invite us to wrestle with what it looks like for us to pursue growth and change. And for some of us, that's daunting. It's terrifying, it's exhausting, it's overwhelming to think about, could we be more mature? Will life ever be different than what it is for us now? Or will we continue to struggle the way we are now? The thoughts can be exhausting and terrifying, and yet it's where Paul calls us to. How does he get us there is where we begin. 
I think the clue to that is, is when we look back at the text, in particular, we look at verse 15. Paul, Paul is, as I said, he's referencing the work that God has begun doing in their lives in verses 13 and 14, or in verse 13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of beloved son. God has picked us up and moved us somewhere, even as many of us have been moved to this place and this time. But in verse 14, he begins a, a parenthetical note to describe who the beloved son is. It's the one in whom we have redemption, the one who accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. He's talking about Jesus. But notice what he does in verse 15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image, the portrait, the picture, the expression that, that, that is visible of what is unseen. Now for some, this may harken back to the early chapters of the Bible where God makes man in his image. God, the infinite unseen, being the one who has always existed, who created all things by the word of his power, spoke into existence a creature that he called man, that he made, he declares him made in his image. He is a physical representation of the unseen God. And yet here, Jesus is described as the image of the invisible God, the, the image of the one who is unseen. This week, some of you who maybe even be in KC this morning may have seen the flyover of several Air Force planes. I found it comical that the B-2 bomber, a billion dollar stealth bomber, was visible in the skies. The, the, the plane that was designed to be hidden was, was made visible uh, as, as part of this display. We've seen videos of it as many of you, many friends and, and, uh, and others took pictures of it and, and portrayed it all over social media. But there's something akin to that happening here. Jesus is, is to be looked at. He is an image. And the intention is that we would see him for who he is. That's our starting place. I want to consider this morning what it is that Paul wants us to see in these verses. The first thing he wants us to see is Jesus' relationship as king over his creation. Look at verses 15 through 17 as we continue on. Notice, the, notice how he speaks of him. Again, moving on in verse, verse 16, he's, or at the end of verse 15, he actually, he says, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now we hear that and we may think Paul is describing Jesus' birth. The word firstborn there doesn't convey that, that notion in this context. In the context, it conveys the notion that Jesus has a place of authority in the family of his people. That he is the firstborn. He is the one who would have, in human terms, he would have the legal rights as the dominant heir, the one to carry on the family name, the family reputation, to bear that responsibility. Here it's an expression of authority. But notice what he, where he goes next in verse 16. It backs this, this idea up. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by, through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Paul lists out thrones and powers and rulers and authorities as if to convey the greatest things that may have impact and influence over your lives. All of it was created through Jesus and for Jesus to meet his, his purposes in this world. The list of things that are listed there sound powerful and true, but they're all placed under the, the creative thumb of the Lord Jesus. This verse ends with this string of prepositions to tell us that Jesus was intimately tied in part of this whole process, that he, the uncreated one, the eternal second person in the Trinity, the eternal son of God, was part of the creative process when God spoke all things into, out of nothing. 
I had a student early in my time here who was a construction science major, and at one point I asked him to, to walk me through what one of his classes looked like. And so he pulled out this giant pad of, of blueprint paper and laid it on the desk in the coffee shop where we were meeting. And as he began to thumb through it, my untrained eye said, well, it all looks the same to me, because he kept flipping after pages after pages, page after page of everything that really looked the same. But as he talked me through it, he explained the details. And he, and he opened to one page and said, you see here, this is what the, the HVAC ductwork, will, where it will hang in, the, in this building that we're, that we're building. And then he flipped to a page that looked the same to me, but he said, this is the same room, but here's the electrical work and how it fits. And here's how the concrete pillars fit into this whole setup. And it began to make more sense. The details were amazing. What Paul says here is not that Jesus is the A student who understands the blueprints better than anybody else. He's not the one who gets those details and knows them like the back of his hand. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was part of the very creation of those plans when it comes to the world and the very structures that they represent. He helped design and build it all. He was intimately involved in the entirety of the process that puts him in this position of authority of ruling with the authority over all that he has made. But then notice in verse 17 what, he, what Paul adds to this picture. In verse 17, we read that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every, he, he not only rules over all things with authority, he holds it all together in a unified kind of way, so that all the pieces, all the intricate parts of all of creation, from the smallest speck of dust to the greatest power that we could, we could imagine, humanly speaking, to the greatest power that we could imagine that we don't even see, he holds it all together in unity. I wonder if your family has been spending days like mine has been in part, and that's doing puzzles. And you know what it's like to be working on a piece, of, part of a puzzle as you, as you sort of work off to the side, uh, apart from everything else, and you get, you get all the pieces put together and you realize where it fits into the broader piece. So you have the challenge of now I need to pick this thing up and transfer it without losing too much of what I've created. It's that picture of holding this puzzle piece, these puzzle pieces ever so gently in your hand picking them up and moving so they can become part of the, the, the greater scene and the greater picture that you're trying to construct. Jesus' hand is doing that with all of creation, even here and now. He rules with authority and he holds it all together. I wonder if this is how we see Jesus, which makes me wonder again then, I wonder if we often serve him in a partial way. We see him as a partial God, but not the full thing as he's pictured here. We see him as one who is strong, yes. One who is unique, yes. One who is after our good. But are we willing to see him as the authority ruling over and holding together all things? As you think about your life, you think about and you dream about the future, you dream about what it is to struggle against sin in your life know that part of what Paul pictures for us here is that there is no authority or power in your life, seen or unseen, that was not created through him and for him. There is no influence in your life. There is no boss. There is no review board. There is no dissertation panel. There is no systemic prejudice. There is no institution that was not created to serve his purposes in your life. Now, that doesn't make all those things absolutely good or justifiable. There's many wrongs that are committed by any and all of those things in our worlds. And yet, what we're told is that all of them were created by him, through him, and for him to accomplish his purposes even in our lives, even so in his world. But even more, Jesus is holding it all together even now. Every part of your existence is upheld by Jesus. Every frustration with this virus, 
every moment of frustration with your spouse or your children, every moment of frustration with your roommate, every feeling of loneliness, every, every emotion that you experience or that you ignore, everything that you do with your free time, every step that you take outside, it's all upheld by Jesus, holding it all together for his purposes in his world. He is the king over creation. Paul pivots just briefly or momentarily there in verse 18 as he continues this thought. Notice how he sharpens our focus from creation to something more specific in verse 18. We read there that he is the head, speaking, again, continuing to speak of Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. It's an interesting way to describe Jesus. As, again, we hear that word of firstborn, and remember, don't think born from nothing. Think of, think of him as, as the one in authority over his people. What Paul is conveying to us here is that he, is, he lived, he died, and he rose again, and he tells us that he's marking out for us the path that his people will follow. Jesus is head over his church. He's the, he's the king in front of his people. He's the one who's leading the way. We will follow after him in life and death and resurrection is the testimony of the scriptures over and over again. He does this that he might be in front of his people leading the way in everything. As verse 18 tells us at the end that he might be preeminent. That he might have the priority. That he might have our direct focus and our gaze and our devotion and our attention. He is the one who leads us out of death into life. If you've seen the, the, any of the Lord of the Rings movies, in particular, particular Return of the King or read the book, you may remember the scene near the end of the saga where Aragorn, the, the, the rightful king who's waiting to be enthroned, um, is, is, go, goes into the, the woods, the forest of the dead, to find the spirits of the dead to lead them into battle. No one else will go, but he, he steals, steals away in order to draw them out. And then when he shows up, it's a surprise to everyone, and he goes into this forest where no one else would follow, and he comes out leading the army, to, army of the dead in victory over their enemies. Beloved, we are the army of the dead, brought again to life, following our king. Jesus is the firstborn, but he's the one who's going before us. But notice, curiously, where he takes us then in verses 19 through 20. As he continues on, he says this, for in him, all the fullness of, him, of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Not only does he lead his people, he leads us all the way into the fullness of life. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus is fully divine. He is God, which is, again, part of the assumption that we've already seen in verses 15 to 17, but here it's flushed out more directly, that the fullness of God, there was no part of God that was not pleased to dwell in Jesus himself. But with that... Notice what he does again in verse 20. Because this one in whom God fully dwelt through him, he reconciled to him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The emphasis is given there, it doesn't simply say by the cross or by his death, but by his blood. Sacrifice is what brought reconciliation and what brings reconciliation for Jesus to us. Paul is not saying here that this means that all things are fixed. Our, our lives, our daily lives, our daily existence would tell us that that's not the case. But what he's, te- what he's describing for us is a healing that takes place by the death of Jesus for humanity that impacts not only humanity itself, but all of creation. 
The Apostle Paul writes these words, the same author writes these words in Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 19. He says that creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This groaning was pointing towards this reconciliation act that would come in the cross. It's because of us. Again, Paul harkens back to the early chapters of his Bible to to remind us that God created all things out of nothing and he called it very good. But humanity twisted it and corrupted it by, by lying, by, by being deceived and by receiving that deceit and by eating the forbidden fruit. By running from God's authority, rejecting his promises of goodness to them, all things became corrupt. Cre- creation itself is subjected to futility, Paul says it. There's a frustrating element to living in this world that we're, we all experience, virus or not. And Paul says the trajectory of the cross is that one day it will all be redeemed fully and finally. This is a picture of the king leading his people into a full redemption. Again, I ask, do we see a partial redemption or a full redemption? Do we see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 describes him, going before us, clearing the path that we might follow him wherever we go, in whatever we do? Those words are worth quoting from Hebrews 12, beginning in verses, verse 1. He says, in part, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is your Savior, He's the one who blazed the trail, the author, the perfecter, the founder, the one who set us on this path to follow after him. And the beauty of this picture is that he invites us to follow him through every part of your life. When he says reconciling all things, as he said repeatedly through this passage, he means all things. The intention of God, of God towards his people, towards his creation itself, is that all of creation would know the healing presence of the work of Jesus through his people as we lead the way through this creation. There's no part of your life that's not included in this work. And so it makes sense for you to give yourself to your studies, students, or to give yourself to your jobs, to give yourself to parenting your children, to give yourself to loving your neighbor, to giving yourself to learning to care for your yard, giving yourself to learning to enjoy the creation that God has given us. Because God, Jesus has all of it in scope here. We don't get to say, well, this part of my life doesn't really have anything to do with my faith. The invitation is that Jesus leads us into all of it. And then we get to verse 21. From a favorite uh, cop show of mine that I won't recommend necessarily for multiple reasons, there's, a, there's one of the characters who has a quirkiness to him. He loves to ask his subordinates, he's a major, a major, a, a police major, and he loves to ask his subordinates, do you know where you are? It becomes a joke to them throughout the show. In one scene, he's got two new recruits fresh out of the academy who show up to work for him and to begin their shift. And he says, gentlemen, do you know where you are? And they look at each other, and one of them feebly says, we're in the Western District, sir. Meaning, we're in in this part of the city that we're supposed to be in, aren't we? 
And the major goes on to describe a scenario in which they might find themselves one day very soon. They might find themselves cornered on the radio screaming for help because they're trapped. And their backup is looking all over the place for them because he doesn't know where they are. And that means, the major says, I got to explain to your next of kin how you went and got yourself killed on my watch. And I don't want to do that all because you don't know where you are. Feebly, one of them responds in response to this, oh, you mean we're at 1034 North Mount Street, first floor, rear. And he replies exactly and tosses them a compass. It's important that we know where we are. It may not cost us our lives in quite the same way as that scenario pictures for us. But Paul wants us to know where we are and and who we are and what we're doing. Look at verse 21. He recounts where we've been. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul turns, our, t- turns a gaze from all of creation, from the beginning of time to the, to the global cosmic scope of the work of Jesus to us. And he says to us, where are you? And he answers the question. He says, well, I know where you were. And what he's telling us is he's telling us that for us specifically, for, those, for all who would believe that this ra- ruling work of Christ standing in front of us, leading us forward, is the one who reconciles us towards holiness. Notice how he looks backwards to where we were. He starts out by saying these Christians were at one point in their lives alienated. Now this is the softest of the descriptions he gives here because in our minds, we might be able to say, well, alienation isn't my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But notice the words that follow to bring clarity. What follows is the word hostile and doing evil deeds. What he's describing is that apart from the work of Jesus, apart from God giving us life, We're enemies of God. We stand against him. We do evil. It may not be explicit. It may not be outwardly focused. But this is who we are. Living for ourselves apart from God. But even this is not enough to thwart God's work in them. Jesus repaired even this fractured relationship with God and is working towards God's beauty, truth, and goodness in our lives. That's what he means when he says in, 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 this, in, the second, in verse 22, he says he's reconciled us. God has repaired the relationship through the death of Jesus. That's what's healed us. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. The trajectory that God has for your life is that you would be holy, that you would be blameless, that you would be above reproach, that you would be without blame, that you, would be, that you would reflect God's perfections in a way that you do not yet know. This is the work that God is doing in you. This is the, tra- the trajectory of his reconciliation through the death of his son in our place. But then we get to verse 23, and some of us may be getting nervous because as 23 begins, it begins with what may be a scary word. He says, if... It sounded good so far, doesn't it? It sounded good to think that Jesus brought this reconciliation, that, he, that, he, that we're on this path towards holiness. But then Paul has the nerve to say, if you continue in the faith, if you continue stable and steadfast, if you continue not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, if, does it make you nervous? What I want you to see here is, is several things when you hear this word if. Because we hear if and we th- some of us immediately think, well, what if I don't? We know ourselves well enough to know that we will fail, that we will falter, that we will doubt, we will be afraid. We will not live this perfectly. What do we do? 
several things I want you to see. The, the first thing is this. When we see if, as in, if I drop my Bible, then it will fall to the floor. That's not a statement about whether or not I actually drop my Bible. It's a statement of the connection between dropping my Bible and it falling to the floor. If is a connection with what follows. It's not about the certainty or uncertainty of the statement itself. So Paul is trying to make a connection between our holding fast and this work of Jesus continuing. What he's describing is the doctrine that we would call perseverance. That we will continue, that those who are God's people will continue in their faith. That they will indeed hold fast. But notice something else about this passage. He talks about holding steadfast and sure to the hope of the gospel. He does not say, if you obey perfectly, then this will be the case. If you do everything right, if you stop hating everyone in your life completely, if you love your neighbor perfectly, if you clean up your room, if you fulfill, if you fill out your taxes honestly every year, he doesn't say any of those things. He's not describing a perfect, sinless life. The hope of the gospel says indeed the very opposite because it acknowledges that our lives are messed up. It acknowledges the fracturing that happens within us, our uncertainty and our confusion and our failure and our doubt and our fear. It acknowledges all of that and still holds out hope before us. The gospel is not our ability to hold out hope to ourselves. The gospel is the hope that we have because of what Jesus accomplished. I want you to see, the third thing I want to say is I want, to, I want you to see this as God's intention in your life. That God's intention as he works out his holiness in you is that you would be actively involved in that. That we would be actively involved in confessing our sins and learning to repent and learning to turn from our rebellion and submit to the will of the Father in all things. This is what he wants for you. Again, I want us to consider, are we trying to live a partial Christian life? Are we settling? Are we looking at our lives and saying, well, I said the prayer, I read my Bible more times than not each week, more, more days than not each week, so I'm doing okay, right? The score is in my favor, I'm doing okay. Or are we saying, I said the prayer, I'm done for the rest of my life, I can just coast from here on out. That's not what God is doing in our lives. That's not what he says here. The, the king is leading the way. He's standing in front of us, leading us the way forward. He's reconciling us towards holiness. And he's, he's preserving us towards holiness. Are we living with some sort of partial savior following a partial Christian life? There's a scene also in Lord of the Rings in The Two Towers, which I think shows up in the movie at some point. There are these two creatures called hobbits that are called halflings, so they're very small creatures. They're almost, we would probably say they're elf or dwarf-like, but Tolkien fans would say how, that I'm bitterly wrong in describing them that way. But there's these two small creatures that, are, that have this job of taking this, this ring of power to get it destroyed. And they have a long way to go, and, and they're, 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 they're the, uh, the surprising heroes of the story, if you will, because they're so small and insignificant. But at one point, Frodo and Sam, these two hobbits, they're called, are having this conversation, and Frodo says in despair, he says, I don't like anything here at all, but so our path before us is laid. And Sam, Sam his, his companion, his faithful companion, responds with these words, and, shouldn't, and we shouldn't be here at all, should we, if we'd have known more about what was ahead of us before we started. But I suppose it's often this way, he says. The brave, thing, the brave things in the, in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, I used to think that they were things that wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull. 
But that's not the way that works at all, is it? It's not, it's not the way it works in the tales that really mattered. Folks seem to have just landed in them. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us turning back, only they didn't. We hear about those and just, those as just went on, and not at all to a good end, mind you, at least not in, the, not in what folk inside a story and not outside a story call a good end. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, are they? I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Frodo responds, I wonder, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale, isn't it? The people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. What Paul is describing in, in Colossians 1 here is that we're on this path that's laid out for us, that began in creation and finds itself connected to even us here and now on this first Sunday in May 2020. He, he writes the story that, in which we found ourselves. Many of us probably wouldn't have chosen this path. We would have chosen the details that we find ourselves on, but this is where we are. And the question before us may feel like the question being, will we continue on and what will that look like? But as we close, I want you to hear what Paul wants for his people and what he actually prays for them in the first part of this chapter and in the second part as well. In chapter one, he prays that the, for the Colossians that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, that they might be ones who are bearing fruit in every good work with all endurance and patience and with joy. Then in chapter 2, he prays and writes that they would reach all the fullness, all the riches of assurance and of understanding. Wherever you find yourself this morning, do you long for more? The Christian life is indeed about longing for more. Longing for more of the knowledge of God's will, longing for more of, of bearing fruit in every good work, longing for more of endurance. It's not up to you, it's not about you, but it is what is set before us and what the call is and what the invitation to is. But I want you to hear that what Paul ultimately sets before us is hope, isn't it? Jesus isn't a partial deity who offers, himself, who offers to us a limited salvation and a future that's completely up in the air. He offers to us Jesus himself, the God, become man, he offers to, to us himself the church, the gathering of his people, those beside us, that he, as he leads the way. And he finds us wherever we are, and he takes us somewhere, and he changes us to do his work in us. Let's pray. Father, grow in us a desire for maturity. Grow in us a desire for change. Not one that we can accomplish, not one certainly that we could manufacture or manipulate, but one that is forged only by you within us. Father, remind us of the hope that we have because of Jesus. May that hope shape us even today. In your name we pray, amen.